welcome to episode 15 of the Podium Runner Endurance Podcast. On the show, I talk to athletes, coaches, and sports scientists about their experiences and advice. Thanks for listening, and I'm your host, Ian Sharman, head coach at Sharman Ultra and a professional ultra runner. This episode, we're talking to nutritionist Meredith Terranova. She's been helping her clients reach their nutritional goals since 2004, including losing weight, wellness, wellness nutrition, race nutrition, training and recovery nutrition. She has a bachelor's in human nutrition and consumer science from the University of Houston and a master's in advanced nutrition and human performance with a thesis on gut microbiome and endurance athletes. She's also an accomplished ultra runner, triathlete, swimmer, and has crewed and paced at many events, including pacing me at Rocky Raccoon and Leadville 100 Miler uh, way back uh, several years ago. This show is about race and daily nutrition, so we discuss things like nutrition in ultra races, especially in the heat, how to fix a problem mid-race, how to train the gut to cope better with calories when running. We talk about various diets, including a standard Western diet, keto or LCHF, high carb and intermittent fasting. We talk about the dangers of undereating to hit race weight, plus a little bit about hydration and what the effects of both too little and too much are on runners. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Here we go. And now a word from this month's sponsor, Inside Tracker. Do you want to run further and faster and recover quicker and easier? Do you want to feel healthier than you've ever felt before? You need to make a change, and that's what Inside Tracker is all about. Founded by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometric data from MIT, Tufts, and Harvard, Inside Tracker is a personalized health and wellness platform like no other. What's their secret? First, Inside Tracker uses its painted algorithm to analyze your body's data and offer you a clearer picture than you've ever had before of what's going on inside you. Then Inside Tracker provides you with concrete, science-backed, trackable action plan information for reaching your performance goals and being your healthy best. For a limited time, Inside Tracker is offering a 25% off in its entire store. Just visit insidetracker.com/endurancehour. Start using Inside Tracker today because change is an inside job. So, with extreme heat of the U.S. Olympic trials in Eugene and an excessively hot Western States 100 miler happening recently, nutrition is a key element to success in all of these. So, welcome, Meredith. Hi, how are you? I'm good. It's nice to see you out there a few days ago, just uh, popping up at aid stations. I know, on course, on, on course nutrition, right? <laughs> exactly. Well, it's so good because there were people coming through who really needed it from you. And it's like, oh, the perfect person to help with the stomach going wrong at mile 40 and, and similar. Yeah. Uh, it's a funny thing, but it's how receptive is somebody when, you know, when things are going wrong. So it's an odd moment. Well, we're definitely going to talk about Western States first. Uh, we'll talk about a range of topics. I just mentioned to you off air uh, what we're going through. But basically, um, because we were both at Western States, that's the most fresh in our mind. And also, I usually find that if you can work out what works in the most extreme circumstances, and so 100 miles in extreme heat, if you can get your stomach to work in that, it'll probably work in anything. So uh, I think that's definitely a, a great place to begin. So um, what were some of the most common stomach or energy-related problems that you saw at Western States? You know, I think it was super standard when we think about nutrition issues, the nausea, the vomiting, the I haven't eaten in 20 miles, um, and then just the basic people overcook themselves. And so nutrition's just not going to work when your heart rate is so high. Um, so it was kind of the basic range that you normally see 
question is, did this happen because people didn't have races to practice it in? You know, maybe. Um, or were people just not prepared for the heat, which is kind of odd because it's always possible last weekend of June in, you know, in the canyon. So it's an unknown why. But I think, you know, we ran the gamut of all the nutrition problems that could happen. It was all happening. And would you say you probably saw more um, people struggling because it was an above average hot day compared to other years you've been there? Or did it seem in many ways normal? I, I hate to say this and burst people's heat button or bubble is that while it was a hot day, in the shade, there was a breeze. You know, there was there was a little break from it. And I was out there in 2006, so I know a hot day. I was out there in 2000 or in 2013. I know a hot day on that course. Saturday was not the hottest it could be. Um, so it's hard. You know, did people hang on too tight to 2019 when it was a cool day? And, you know, kind of not get their nutrition right for a really hot day. Like you said, preparing for the hardest event in hard weather, you can be prepared for everything. Um, I start to wonder if maybe people just weren't, those who weren't successful were not prepared for the day that came. I think you're right there. And I agree that even though this was very hot, that the high in Auburn was 101. Um, 2013, which I, I ran as well, that was 102 was the high there, but a lot of the rest of the course was, was even hotter. So that's the finish line, Auburn. But um, it did feel like, you know, and anything where it's 60, 70, 80 degrees, if you're not used to it, you can have stomach problems. Never mind if you're all day long in extreme direct sunlight, although there was quite a lot of shade on the course as well. But um, it, it is one of those things that tends to be make or break in ultras in particular. And a lot of marathoners also find that, that uh, if you can't get the nutrition right, you just fade at the end of it. So um, is there always some trial and error involved in working out what works for an individual runner and, and what will work for that race and having to do the specifics of what that race uh, goes through, such as heat? Well, and I think there are two separate things going on. Um, when we think about nutrition, you know, the fact of the matter is our body has enough of what it needs that if you don't eat for a little while or if you're low on calories, that you're going to bonk some, but you can continue on. When it comes to hydration and electrolyte balance and when it comes to getting dehydrated or, you know, not getting enough salt or getting too much salt, that is where I call it the deal breaker. You know, it's where we when we start losing that balance, like you're not going to feel good if you don't have enough fuel in your body, but you're not going to not finish. When you start messing with your hydration is when you run into the, this is where you might not finish. You know, this is where things can go so wrong. You know, not eating doesn't cause nausea right? Missing your electrolyte and your hydration balance, that's where you get the nausea or the crampy stomach or the body and leg cramps, you know, that's not from not eating. And so I always feel like the race deal breaker, whether you're running a marathon 200 miles to 200 miles, it's in that hydration equation is where we have our biggest success and our biggest failure. And it starts from mile one, right? Again, if you missed a gel, you can always take another gel. Um, 
if you don't drink enough or if you, you know, drink all water or if you don't get enough electrolytes for your sweat rate in your body, like that's where you're going to have the catastrophic failures. So, so would you say then that if someone gets a bit behind on their nutrition, they probably slow down, but it's not causing nasty things to happen. It just feels harder, basically. Right. Um, but overeating, I suppose, or eating things that your stomach doesn't agree with, that's going to be the, the risk for people. Maybe they haven't trained enough with those types of foods, or they've got used to having three gels in a marathon, but not having 30 gels in a 100 miler or something like that. And they, because they haven't trained their stomach, it's that element that matters more versus the under eating. Absolutely. And it, it is, you, you nailed it. It's training your gut. You know, you have to prepare your gut. If gels were delicious, we would be eating them every day as our sustenance. Like they're not delicious. They are also, if you eat a really clean diet, their makeup is also, you know, aside from some of the gels, most of them are not what our body like is regularly used to digesting and accepting. And so by utilizing your nutrition and getting used to it and getting your gut used to utilizing nutrition, that's like the basic, you know, and that's such like, why do we train? We train to get our body ready for an event. Like same thing, we should train to get our gut ready. And that's like the basic science of like, just do the math, you know, go, go use your nutrition. You also, there are so many products on the market, like go play around, you know, I always tell clients who are kind of finding their way through nutrition. I'm like, go find what you like, what you'll tolerate. And then I can make the numbers work, you know, but let's see what you're, you're going to take in. And that's what training's all about. I, I completely agree. And we'll come back to the hydration you mentioned, because I think that's a, a major thing there, but just going down uh, this avenue a little bit more. Um, how do people train up their gut? What's the process that the gut goes through and how frequently do you, do you, do you need to do it? How close to race day? What, what are the kind of general rules based on the science there? Well, and so I think you start, you start with a run that makes sense. You know, like if you, if you're training for a marathon and you're not going to do a terribly, you know, long run, a bunch of long runs, then I always say, take a gel or take your nutrition right before you're going to go do a hard workout. Because if it works, if your nutrition works when you head out for a hard workout, when your gut's shut down, when the blood's away from your gut, then it's going to work on a long run. So you can kind of peel it back where you're utilizing nutrition on short efforts, maybe less important efforts. So, you know, you're not testing brand new nutrition on your most important runs. You can kind of peel it down to, you know, unimportant or fast and short runs take something. Um, there was a famous triathlete named Peter Reed. He used to eat nachos and like all kinds of junk food right before he'd head out on really hot heat training runs. And that was his way of test of training his gut. And he said, guarantee, you know, out in Hawaii at mile 20, my gut's going to feel terrible, but it's never going to feel as terrible as it does during that workout. Same idea. I agree. I, I, I do an element of that myself, actually. I sometimes personally do a run after dinner, so I know I've got a full stomach. Um, you can't do a workout. You can't do anything hard, obviously. But even just doing any running and not needing to go to the toilet or feel sick, um, it feels like that is helping the stomach get used to it. And it's the mechanism there, basically, that you're having food in the stomach, ideally the same types of things that the enzymes will need to deal with on race day. And then 
it just gets better at doing that. Like like the body adapts to everything else. It gets more efficient at getting enough blood flow there, um, being able to absorb it. Um, and how long does that take? I mean, is that a few sessions and you see a, a big improvement? Is it something you've got to do for months and months, uh, especially if there's some trial and error because some things aren't working? So, you know, there's no limit to the amount of time it should take. Um, the deadline, in my opinion, is when everything's working great. Uh, when you know that you feel great when you have energy and beyond through your run, when you can close hard, that tells you your plan is working. Um, obviously, if you don't have restroom stops, if you don't have any nausea, if you don't have any stomach acid, that's when you know things are working really well. The timeline is when you get that result and you can finalize your plan. Um, you wanna feel confident in your plan. You know, part of knowing that this is your your great plan is saying i've used it 20 times and every single time it's felt great um in 2010 when i did western states you know i knew my plan but i also decided to carry cliff blocks i was like i just might need these cliff blocks finally at dusty corners um, my husband said you can stop carrying those i had been carrying them in a little pouch i had not eaten one of them but he was just like, you can stop now. Like you're not taking those. And I was like, okay, and, you know, I reluctantly, but it was like, and I hadn't really used them in training. So it was just funny that like, I felt this weird need to carry something extra, um, which is fine. But, you know, once you feel really confident in your plan, the nice thing is you can go train with easy stuff that's not your plan, um, especially for easy runs. You can use grocery store stuff. You can eat candy. You can, you know, kind of play with some other stuff. But um, and that's more just so you don't get like flavor fatigue. Um, Pam Smith, really, she nailed that more than anybody else because she says, you know, during races, she would tend to get um, flavor fatigue late in a race and she's won Western states. And so when she, she did it in the, in the hot year in 2013, she did that in yeah. 2013. Yep. In a very hot year. And so when she would go for runs, she would eat licorice and sodas and Gatorade because it's cheap and easy to get. And, um, she didn't necessarily race with any of that stuff. Yeah. I suppose that the thing there for someone who maybe is moving up to the longer distances and they were fine in a marathon, you know, they had their gels in a marathon. There's one brand they liked, but they're thinking, I'm not sure I can do that for loads more hours. How important is it to have a variety of different types of food, particularly tastes and textures, just to stop that kind of palate fatigue that you were just mentioning? Um, you know, so there's the base, um, you know, there's the tried and true base. Like if you know gels work for you, so that can create your base. And then every 90 minutes or two hours, you could put, and I steal this word from you. This was your word when you did Leadville and I crewed for you. You said, I'm just going to take some nibbles at an aid station of the food. And that's really every hour and a half or two hours, take some nibbles of something else that will really break. One, you can take less gels and two, it will help fill the void. Like if you all you have is sweet stuff, you can take some salty stuff. You know, you can kind of break that up. Or if your stomach really needs something solid, you could have, you know, a waffle or a candy bar or something like that just to break that up. Are there any universal rules or, or things that you pe think people definitely shouldn't try and do? Like, you know, you hear people having uh, obviously real food. There'll be quesadillas and pizza or whatever at, at aid stations, which are maybe just a little bit, harder for, for the average runner to digest on a normal run but 
anything that you think most people should at least definitely try out at some point and things that you think uh, people should definitely avoid? Um, the only thing I think is if you are somebody who's seeking more real food, you should do a number count on your fiber intake of what you're choosing. Um, if you choose all bars, some bars are higher in fiber. And so if, you know, the math of that is that at some point that's going to be a heavy, bulky load on your gut. The other thing is if you intend, especially early in a race and you intend to like make real food part of the practice, you should actually be training with it. Um, you know, nowadays at, at aid stations, um, I noticed that they're kind of serving you up a little bit of food, but it's not 150 calories worth of food. So if you're counting on 150 calories of pretzels or Fritos or whatever that thing is at an aid station, you better make sure either you're carrying it and your gut's used to kind of grab, you know, grabbing a baggie or just kind of being prepared of what that feels like. Um, and that just keeps going back to the practicing the food. You know, it can be great to use, utilize aid station stuff, but if it's totally foreign to your system, like I know some people that have gotten really sick off of soups at races just because they've never had like a thick potato soup or whatever that was that was at the aid station. And, um, you know, they were like, oh, I only work with broth. It's a totally different world with a potato soup. Yeah, I always feel like you stick to your normal stuff, but if late in the race that's really not working or it's totally unappealing, then throw the kitchen sink at it. That's the, the phrase I use. Of whatever else they have at the aid station, give it a go. But ideally, I've tried as much of that out in advance as possible. Right, and in the last 20 miles, you know, and I hate to give it that much of a distance, but really the damage, like if you have to stop and use the restroom a couple times over 20 miles, that's not nearly as bad as if you're starting a brand new nutrition plan on course at mile 30. 70 miles is a really long way to go if that goes sideways. <laughs> I completely agree. I've had that happen once and it makes the day very, very long. Um, yes. One of the things you just mentioned there reminded me of, of just the different foods you get in different countries, for example, or even just different parts of the same country. Like uh, in a race in France, they had meat and cheese at aid stations. Yes which most Americans are going to think, wow, that's probably not going to go down that well while I'm running. But if it's yeah. part of your normal diet and your normal running diet, then it's fine. Or in the UK, they'll have things like sausage rolls and cake um, that you wouldn't see here. But it's basically like a kid's party is a typical aid station there. <laughs> Although saying that American ones are also quite like kid's parties with the uh, candies and uh, chips and everything else. Yeah. Yeah. And it's in now they post, you know, ev almost every race posts a list of the drink on hand, the aid station, or you can contact the race director and get an idea, whether it be a marathon uh, all the way through an ultra, you can find out what the drink is on hand. You should be, if you don't intend on carrying bottles and all your own stuff, you should be training with the fuel that's on course. Um, and that's for every single distance. I have seen more runners ruin their race taking a foreign electrolyte drink off a table that they had never had. The sugar was weird. You know, I've I've heard it all. I've seen it all. Um, and and it's so easy because you can like click on and click on a website and it's right there. I completely agree. I think that that's one of the best pieces of advice is you may be fine with one brand of sports drink. And if another one is the uh, the sponsor of the race, 
test it out in advance. And if you don't like it, then you can plan around it. But you don't want to find out you don't like it or it disagrees with you in the middle of the race. That's the the worst thing that can happen. That's the same in a marathon. You know, maybe it's sponsored by Cliff Bar, but you like goo. Try out the Cliff Bar ones. And if you don't like them, make sure you've got goo to, goo to hand. That You know, whatever it may take. Uh, there's a lot of things you can plan for and logistically work out in advance. Um, related to that is actually is that generally it's easier to digest something that's more liquidy versus something more solid and certainly more fibery. So um, drinking some calories in theory should be a bit easier on the stomach overall. And if it's a hot day, you'll need to drink a lot anyway. So what about um, making the nutrition plan be more liquid based? Because it's usually a bit easier to digest something that is more liquidy. I know Magda Boulay, when she won Western States, when I was coaching her for that, she didn't have any solid food at all. She only had Gurocktain drink all day long. So is that generally a good plan to at least try to have more things that are more liquidy uh, and not quite as solid um or any benefits to that or any downsides that you see um i so especially i you know when we used to have just bladders um i always used you know that's high risk because you're not monitoring how much you're drinking unless you're super disciplined but now with the bottles, you know, when once people started going to handhelds and the bottles, you know, the chest bottles, when you can really pay attention to how much you're drinking, having one bottle of fuel and one bottle of liquid as your base calories um, is really golden. You know, it's quite amazing um, because you can get this not only the steady flow, small amount, you know, kind of drip of fluid you also get electrolytes you also get calories now some products don't have electrolytes in them they're just calories but even so you get this slow steady drip as your base the whole time you know and you can start that from mile one you can start alternating the fuel and the water consumption immediately which is just a beautiful balance um so yeah i think that that's one of the that's one of the biggest benefits and it also um it just is a really good base uh you know it can get sweet and so that that can be an issue but aside from the sweetness you know i think if you can tolerate it keeping that as your base is really ideal throughout and do you think that would work for a marathoner as well maybe just getting uh uh cups along the way of whatever the energy drink is that, that that's a reasonable plan and maybe not even have to have any solids or, or gels or similar it tends to not be enough unless you can really get disciplined in taking enough cups in and especially since most of most of the on course fuel for marathons is just an electrolyte drink it's not mm -hmm. a calories to cover um one of the things that we run into with that is that, you know, your output during a marathon is much higher because you, you know, if you're racing a marathon, you're sitting on that anaerobic aerobic right on that line. And when you sit on that line, you're burning a lot of carbs. And so drinking an electrolyte drink, maybe let's say you're getting 20, 30 calories a cup. That's just not enough. But Buffen Ultra, if it's something that's really um, much more concentrated and you've got it in a bottle so you can be having it the whole time, that that's going to give you a lot more calories per hour. It's going to give you more calories. For also, like I said, it gives you that great base, you know, so it's like 
throughout the hour, you're sipping on anywhere from 100 to 150 calories, you know, depending on your bottle, could be 200 calories. Then you may only need one gel or you may only need like a couple of chews to supplement that to get your calories per hour, which just lightens the load of how much, especially on a hot day, how much solid you're having to, you know, give you want your body to you when your heart when your heart rate's up because it's hot you want your body you know other parts of your body to not have to work or work as little as possible and so the liquid just makes it easier for your body not have to have to work to make that gel work <laughs> definitely uh, and i suppose it, a, a fair question here would be is the aim to be able to take in the most calories that your stomach can take in basically whatever that that you've worked out through training is it better all other things being equal to take in 250 calories than 200 calories an hour that that, that would be a better position to be in as long as you know it's sustainable and it's not that that's going to be causing you problems down the line so is that a name basically to try and be able to take um, on more calories you want to be able to take in the best amount of calories and i'm going to use the word best instead of most the best amount of calories your body can utilize per hour. Um, I always like to say, because there are this population of people who know their stomachs go south later in a race. And so they're like, early in the race, I'm going to eat as much as I can. And I was like, we're not squirrels. We don't store up for winter, you know, so extra is not always better. So I think, you know, the best, our best amount of calories and everybody's range is interesting. There is a good, you know, 150 to 250 calories is like a nice little centralized range where I kind of have people start to test. Some people can go up to 300 calories an hour. Some people really sit at that, which feels very low, but 150 calories an hour is like what their body can utilize really well and it's like if you read every piece of research like that feels low but i have seen clients do amazing i mean shockingly amazing on 150 cal calories an hour and their stomachs turn south at 200 calories an hour like 200 cal calories an hour and three hours in they're puking um and then you dial it back 50 calories and it's amazing the difference and so i would say kind of start low and then build as your training um, because again, from the calorie perspective, you're just going to bonk. I mean, and I, I hate to like make that sound like, oh, what? No big deal. You're just going to bonk. But in the grand scheme, it's not a big deal because you can always add more. What we forget is the unwinding of doing too much, whether it's too many calories, too much salt, too much fluid, like pick your pick your pick your nutrition thing, the unwinding of doing too much is much harder than just adding more no i i agree i think that's a it's something people will be it's a mistake you can make quite easily if you're not aware of what you're doing and, and so really that trial and error in your training runs to work out what feels sustainable what gives you enough energy but it's not making you feel sick and you can do it hour after hour after hour problem is of course that most training runs are not long enough to to do all of that so do you think there's a big role for uh, training races. So let's say you're training for a really long race, having something like a 50K in the build up to a 100 miler or 50 miler in the build up to a 100 miler, just so you can at the very least test the nutrition plan, uh, as well as the psychology and the tactics and the pacing and everything else. 
I think there's nothing better than having build up races. Um, that should even be like sea level effort. I mean, like, you know, train through them, like, don't even like eat a hamburger the night, whatever, but solely for the thing, the fact that we are more disciplined on our nutrition when we put a bib on than when we just go out for a run. I mean, how, you know, how many times do people go out for a 10 or 12 or 15 mile run with barely a water bottle? But here we are, if you're in a race, you're going to drink water, you're going to take gels, you're going to do all these amazing things. You're going to take even test your pre-race, your morning of nutrition. You know, you will do all of those things, even if you're not racing through the effort from a pace standpoint. Um, it is all about that we are just more disciplined when we put a bib on um, from a nutrition standpoint. So yes, um, and even if not, you know, I kind of joke, I'm like, put a bib on and pretend like you're going on a race day and set up, you know, even if it's a set up your own aid station, where you are like, no, I know that the aid stations in my A race are every 90 minutes and then get back to your car or whatever that is so that you can practice that you refill, no joke, exactly the fuel you're going to take in. Yeah, you want to be tried and tested. That, that's not just nutrition, that's everything you do on race day, obviously. Yeah. yeah, and I think that that's something that people really kind of, you know, we drew, I mean, Western state, you know, I look at Western states, how many years nowadays you have to wait to get in or, you know, so many of these races, you know, you don't just get in because you put your name in the lottery. So it's like, if this race is so important, it should, you, your nutrition practice should be part of that equation. And it could be something, you know, not even as from a hundred miler, like Boston Marathon. People waited two years, you know, sometimes are waiting longer because they didn't meet the time. And it's like, your training runs, you should have it set up where you're taking a gel, where you anticipate to take a gel during the race. You know, it's like, don't kind of wing it and say, oh, well, I take a, a gel kind of at mile 12. It's like, no, when you're in Boston, when do you plan on taking a gel? What time will that be on your clock? And then that's the time you should be taking a gel because there are so many people that say they get to mile 18 or 21 and the gels start turning their stomachs. And it's like, well, it's probably because you didn't run that that many hours or whatever that thing was and take that many gels and see what that actually felt like. And also the specifics there, you can look at where the aid stations are, like Boston or similar. They'll say these are the only places where you can have gels. It's mile 9, 12, 17, whatever it is. And so you can plan to do exactly that because that's what's going to be available on race day. Totally, totally. And we know, like I said, there are breakdowns of almost every single race. You know exactly what mile your aid stations are at. You know what all of that looks like now. And so it's it's almost silly to say that you didn't know or like this was something that you lacked in preparation. Even from a hydration standpoint, you know, I work with marathoners as well who are like, oh, at certain races, I had no idea that the water stops were every two at this race versus every one, one and a half at the other. And it's like, that's significant over the course of a marathon, that half a mile, if you're only grabbing a little, a little bitty sip of, you know, water, that becomes significant later on. Or, or for your planning on getting calories in that way. And so the frequency you get calories is changed. It changes everything. And now a word from this month's sponsor, Inside Tracker. 
you want to run better than you've ever run before? You need to make a change, and that's what Inside Tracker is all about. Inside Tracker is an ultra-personalized wellness platform that analyzes your body data and creates science-backed action plans to help you reach your potential for better-than-ever endurance and performance. For a limited time, Inside Tracker is offering 25% off its entire store. Just visit insidetracker.com/endurancehour. Get Inside Tracker today because change is an inside job. So we've kind of transitioned a little bit to to shorter stuff, which is what I want to do next anyway. So there's a lot of ultra chat there and some pretty extreme stuff. Let's just talk about a little bit more about general diets. So um, let's start off with what I suppose you call some like a standard Western diet, fairly evenly balanced. Um, but now there's so many other ways that people try and eat. So first of all, what is that type of diet? And then um, any kind of pluses or minuses about it in general? Uh, well, I, I hate to even like down our standard Western diet, like the standard Western diet via research is actually like a highly processed, horrible diet <laughs> nowadays. Um, so when they're when they talk about the Western diet, especially in disease state, they actually talk about this high sugar, high processed fat diet. Um, I call it the average athlete diet. Um, the average athlete diet, if we're talking optimal nutrition, is beautifully balanced where we eat enough protein. Our focus is protein, vegetables, getting in good grains that are create a good balance for our body. The idea behind that is how can we recover, replenish, and get ready for each and every training day so that then our body can perform its best when it does need to get up on, you know, our a race stage. Yeah, and and so that that's probably the default somewhere around what we think of as some processed stuff, eating out, um, not necessarily restricting any particular things. So there's more diets that a lot of athletes are going into these days that do restrict certain things. So should we start off with a, a keto or low low carb, high fat diet? Uh, you know, what are your thoughts about that? And and also, what does it involve eating for anyone who doesn't know? So the keto diet um, and low carb, high fat um, involves cutting out carbs, um, carbohydrates or all grains, in that case, also certain fruits and vegetables, um, you know, where the diet is filled primarily as the priority is fat. So different sources of fat, whether it be coconut oil, um, types of butters, cheeses, you know, so um, it's an interesting state. Um, and this really kind of speaks to a lot of the more trendy diets that are out there now, um, even if they offer a temporary, you know, solution to an issue, whether it be um, weight loss, um, whether it be maybe a slight performance bump, which I have unfortunately have not seen with clients seeing a performance bump, they normally feel pretty awful. Um, but really what it starts with the word is restrictive. You know, we're restricting things. What that feeds into is changing our body, um, whether it be a reduction of calories, so you do see a weight loss difference, whether it be a restriction, so then your body may become deficient. You know, we don't know the long-term effects. You may become um, vitamin and mineral deficient. From a women's standpoint, they're seeing a lot of this restriction 
is linked to hormonal changes and not in a positive way. And so where the initial was, oh, you're going to get lean, you're, this is anti-inflammatory, this is, you know, doing these amazing things for certain performances. What we're seeing now is kind of some of the back end of that where, you know, there are a number of women who tried and have had, you know, like hormone imbalances have seen the downfall of that restriction. Um, and, you know, in restrictive diets, just again, the long-term implication from a recovery and performance standpoint, anytime you overly restrict anything from your diet, you know, there's a negative implication to that. And I suppose in particular, the, the kind of keto thing has been more applicable to people doing longer distances. Um, and part of the rationale that I've heard is if you're doing an ultra, it's very low intensity. So you are burning a higher proportion of fat versus carbohydrate, but you still need carbs, obviously. Um, while maybe in a marathon, because that's higher intensity and certainly even shorter distances, 10K, et cetera, it's even more so going to be carb-based. So it doesn't seem like there's any top level marathoners professionally who are doing anything other than you know having a lot of carbs like an ethiopian or kenyan diet seems to have uh, a lot of carb staples in there but is there potentially something that could help for some for people who are doing those slower low intensity distances do you think um or just that they could get away with it more in that situation that it, it you know it, it wouldn't necessarily work for everyone like you mentioned particularly women but it might might work for, for others in some circumstance? Um, you know, it's interesting. So there were, there were people that it, it's working for, um, that's definitely, you know, um, you know, experiment of one, whether, whether it works for you or not, there is not an overall, um, determination of who this, who this works for. Um, I have seen interestingly middle of the pack runners, even though on paper, somebody would say they're not fast, but they push their body, you know, they're, they work hard too. And so they're burning carbs because even though they're out there not running a quote unquote fast pace, for them, their body still also sits on that line of aerobic and anaerobic. So they are still carb burners. Um, and so when they go try to do exercise, they still need available carbs, you know? Um, for, for weight loss purposes, removing carbs will create a scenario of faster weight loss. Like the math is there. If you pull out the carbs, you're eating less calories, you, you know, you're, you're, um, you're going to lose weight. Are you going to have good energy when you try to go for a 12 mile run, no matter where you sit on the line? You know, again, if you're that experiment of one where it does work for you, yes, you are going to feel you are going to feel good and you're going to think that, you know, I am wrong and every other sports person who speaks against keto is, you know, is also wrong. So I will own that now. I'm sure there's a lot of people getting very defensive as they're hearing this. <laughs> yes. Just, just because it's the thing that's working for them. Totally. And I support that person as, you know, again, there will be people this works for and there because if you name the diet and there will always be a handful of people that can get away with that for the large sum it's not you know it doesn't work um and the long-term implications are unknown i mean it just you know we don't have 30 years of it 
we know how our body metabolizes so much of what we eat. We don't know long-term what happens in absence of all carbs while trying to train long distance. You know, we don't know the long-term health implica implication of that. And at the end of the day, especially aside from the elite few, we're all doing this to be healthier. You know, and even the elites at the end of the day are doing this to be healthier. And so, you know, looking for balance because that's the end goal is to be healthier. Um, we have to keep that in mind. I think sometimes we forget that when we're trying out, you know, every magical thing. No, I, I agree there. And and a good one person in particular who springs to mind who we're both familiar with and anyone listening may be thinking of is Zach Bitter. In fact, you were helping out his wife at Western States. Um, so Zach was is the former 100-mile world record holder. And uh, he's very much on the, I'm not sure what he described the diet, but like a keto LCHF type diet. And uh, I know that in a race, though, he still does take on carbs. So he's restricting most of the time. But he's still needing to take on additional carbs when he's doing a race, which is an additional complication because you then you have to get used to not having them and then also get used to having them when you're running just for the race. So uh, there's definitely complexities in there that uh, it's not just like you you stop having carbs and then you don't have any carbs on race day two and it's the same. Well, and, you know, to Zach, because I know him, um, you know, he his he is that experiment of this works for him this is all the foods he eats is also his preferred way of eating it makes him feel his best um you know he is not somebody who gravitated ever toward eating a giant pizza you know like that was just not his foods of choice um but to the training slash racing one zach has raced and has enough racing experience and enough training experience that he has literally trained his gut to operate in this manner you know, so his body over many, many years, over yeah. many, many years. So it's like we have to give that into, you know, why does this work for him? Well, he knows what works for him. And he's had great experience training that and working with that to find, you know, fine tune for himself what that thing is. So um, it's really easy you know, to say, oh, I want to do what Zach does, but also remember he has been fine tuning what's working for him for a long time at a high level. He also pays very close attention to where he races on that aerobic to anaerobic line, you know, so he's very in tune with his body of where he's crossing, you know, for the races that he's doing. So he is, you know, very tuned into what his body's need is. Um, so let's move on to a different type of diet because, uh, and let's, let's annoy some other people. Yes. So let's go for intermittent fasting next. Oh. So what is it and what's the, what's the concept behind it to help? Intermittent fasting is, um, when you fast for long, long durations of time, um, whether it be 10 to 12 hours, and then you load your calories during the other window of the day, you know, or pick your windows, but. You fast for a certain number of hours and then you eat during a window of time. Um, interestingly enough, if for the average runner who runs in the morning, who eats dinner at 6 p.m., goes to bed shortly afterward, might wake up in the morning at 5 a.m. to go for their run, they magically intermittent fast every single day. 
Well, it's it, what you have in the morning is breakfast. It's breaking your fast. Totally. Um, you know, but it's interesting that people are like, oh, I need to like not eat for all these hours. I'm like, well, you just didn't eat overnight. You kind of fasted. Like, you, you just played the game. Um, intermittent fasting over long periods of time, skipping meals, being hungry, whether and some people will say, I'm just not hungry. Um, from a performance standpoint is such a hit on recovery and replenishing your body um, can be a huge hit on your metabolism, depending on your age. Uh, you know, uh, as we for those who are no longer 20 years old and have super fast metabolisms by, you know, walking around hungry and pushing the time in which you eat you slow your metabolism down. And so intermittent fasting, just from the fact of like not giving our body food when we want or need it is tough on training. Um, also, if you are somebody who trains in the morning and you have decided that you intermittent fast until whatever noon or two, you also are not replenishing and recovering from your workouts in the morning. Um, and so just from the math of like, again, our goal is to be healthier. Our goal is to feel good when we run and feel good when we exercise. So why would you fight that? Um, and so just like from the basic math of that, also it feeds into, and I'm going to use the word restriction again. And, you know, we have to be so mindful not to get start setting up rules you know an intermittent fasting creates a scenario where we're setting up rules of the timing in which we can eat you know and by setting up rules we create a negative scenario with our food um instead of just keeping it like positive like i'm replenishing i'm you know i'm fueling my body i'm eating balance you know we want to keep our eating experience really positive and that helps us feel good when we're running. And so I think that just setting up rules, which I feel like intermittent fasting is just like a level of a rule of when you're allowed to eat. Yeah. Is, is it really mainly just reducing calories because you have fewer hours a day you eat? Oh, no. I know. Uh, oh, no. I know people that can shut no, but what would that calories in those hours. Would get if, if, Pardon? <laughs> okay. Yeah. They can certainly stuff the calories in, but but would that be one of the reasons people potentially might see that they're feeling better or they're losing weight is basically because they're taking in less food per day because there's less time of the day they do it? Absolutely. Or they'll say, you know, I only eat like a snack and dinner. So it's like if you're only eating a meal and a half, yes, you're eating, you know, a quarter of the amount of calories you should actually be eating for the day. Yes. Um, but yeah, there are also people who are genuinely hungry by time they break that fast. And then they, you know, kind of almost create a scenario where they're overeating during those windows um, that they are allowing themselves to eat because they are physiologically hungry when that moment hits. I, I think that gives a good summary of it. I'm not sure we need to go too much more into it. Um, but I just have a, a couple more questions. So one of them is, is there any need to carbo load for a big race? You know, carbo load is traditional old school carbo loading where you see the people eating these huge bowls. The pasta party, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's a thing of the past. Um, there is a benefit to making sure that your glycogen stores are filled, meaning that you are eating carbs. You know, 
um, while you're tapering, really being disciplined about continuing to eat what your body needs to replenish is really important. Um, having a giant meal the night before a race literally just has to be digested. And so best thing you can do is eat the meal that makes you feel fast when you wake up in the morning that digests easily, you know, especially knowing that you're going to fuel well, you know, if you have a great plan and you're going to fuel well on race day, you don't need to overeat the day before. Um, and so, you know, and, and if anything, if you feel the need to eat that heavier meal, do it two days out so that you have a chance to fully digest it and you're not just like sitting with a brick in your stomach. One of the things about overeating the night before a race, you know, traditional carbo load thought is you wake up and you're just not hungry. And so then you throw off that whole routine, you know, you've reduced training. So, you, you know, you haven't done as much and now you've eaten this huge meal. Well, you set off this whole scenario where maybe you don't eat your full pre-race breakfast. Maybe you don't take your first gel because your stomach feels heavy. So you kind of potentially set up this scenario where you're not doing everything your body actually needs for the race. M makes perfect sense. Yeah, I think I, I agree. It does seem like the whole carb loading pasta party thing is in the past. Like you don't see that an announced at big races anymore. It used to be every single one of them. Now it doesn't seem as necessary. It doesn't seem to have harmed people, but there's definitely too many people who probably ate too much right before and then felt a negative effect on race day. Right. And then just the side note to that is if you're not training with that big meal, also know that you might be in the bathroom in the four, first four miles of the race, you know, so. I, I have done that exactly. I, I thought I was doing what I was meant to do. And then it's why am I needing to stop five miles into the race every time? And it's not, uh, it's not something you have to do. It's, it was clear cause and effect. So my next question was, um, is there any real difference between having big meals that are spread out versus smaller meals throughout the day? Any good reasons to do either of those? Um, no difference. I'd say that everybody goes on a preference for that. Um, you know, it's nice to eat throughout the day, just from an enjoyment standpoint, um, you know, have a little bit throughout the day. Some people I would say, so there's a couple things that happen. So three big meals, um, if you're overeating at those three big meals, reduce them down. And then if you find you need a snack because you reduce them, then you can add in a snack. Some people snack because they're checking a box. Somebody told them they needed five or six meals a day. And so people are eating because somebody told them that. Um, mm -hmm. And find that the best thing we can do is let hunger drive when we're eating, not getting overly hungry, but like if you're not hungry at 10 a.m., you don't need to have some snack because somebody told you you needed to have a snack, especially if you eat lunch at noon and you had breakfast at eight, you know, it's like there's not that many hours between the meal. Uh, if you're somebody that eats lunch at 11 or 12 and you don't eat dinner to like 7 p.m., that's a long time. And so sometimes there's a benefit to a snack just so that you don't overeat at dinner and then take that largest meal to bed with you. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've certainly heard people say maybe it's just evening out the calories and, and the ability to recover by having smaller meals. But I think a, a good overarching thing 
for everyone to think about is food should be enjoyable. You know, the, the more it becomes just a stress or you're worrying about trying to do it too perfectly, I think that can be a, a big negative in your life. It's already hard enough to train and run and bike or, or whatever your preferences are. That takes a lot of commitment. So you want to at least be able to enjoy uh, eating overall and, and an overly restrictive or strict diet or even too many rules, I think, can take away from that because you just start thinking about those rules rather than just being able to, to get into a good habit and, and stick in that habit that feels right. I also think we start losing track of hunger, right? It's like if we mm-hmm. have all these rules that we're, or timelines that we're supposed to be following, we just stop forgetting about like the basic, am I hungry? Certainly. So my, my last uh, area to just discuss is uh, we've talked a lot about how to, trying to kind of optimize nutrition. And um, I think a lot of especially committed runners are always thinking about their weight and how that's going to be affecting how well they run. So under eating or um, even more serious things like anorexia, bulimia, um, obviously there's a lot of injuries and, and negatives that come from that psychologically and physically. So is there any real benefit to thinking about race weight or is that just something we should basically never talk about and, and not not uh, try and focus on? So an ideal weight. And I think that, you know, again, every single person who has set a big goal has attached what they want to look like or feel like to that. Um, and I hate to say even say that, but, you know, it, it just exists. Um but really our ideal weight, whether it be a number on a scale or not, is defined by when we feel our best, we recover our best, and we can train our best. It is not based on a number. Um, some numbers that are arbitrary that we've defined, um, it may be impossible to recover, or we may have bad performance every three days. Um, and so we lose sight of our actual best number is the number when we can do all the things at our best. Um, And to that point is we can do all the things to our best without having to restrict, without having to under eat, um, without having to, you know, it's one thing to say, oh, I'm not going to eat candy up until race day, you know, kind of set up like an arbitrary fun thing. But if you've created, you know, 20 rules around your eating just so you can get to race day two pounds less, like that's not that's not our ideal. Completely agree. Uh, And of course, for a lot of people, there's also the risk of you're going to get more injured, you're going to lose some consistency. So something that allows you to train week in, week out and recover from it. uh, It's more important to think of the food as fuel versus some forbidden fruit where you're having too much of it and now you're one pound over and, and all the obsessive things that can come from that. Yeah, and I think that um, every person needs to look at their their ideal is different. You know, there's no comparison. And I know it's so hard with social media not to compare, but if we can, you know, focus on the fact that everybody's ideal is so different. Exactly. Everything is, uh, to some degree at least, an experiment of one, as we talked about with quite a lot of the things uh, throughout this uh, discussion. Yeah, and, and in such a positive way. Yes. So uh, thank you for 
your time there. Thank you for the uh, all, all the things we've discussed. Is there anything else you wanted to mention that you think maybe is a uh, is underestimated or, or not thought about enough, and and that might uh, that we didn't cover today? Um, you know, one of my favorite thoughts is that great nutrition is not sexy. It is actually not this fun magical thing. It's just the basics, you know, it's eating balanced, it's doing the work in it, you know, day in and day out, just as you do when you train. Um, I wish I had some, you know, unicorn way to describe, you know, doing it well, but I don't. And so you have to remind yourself, like, sometimes, like the best thing you can do for your body is actually not this, you know, little secret potion, it's just the most boring thing. I think that's a good uh, good piece of advice for people to take away. And uh, it's definitely not like there's one size fits all. And uh, it's, yeah, it's basic stuff that you can do week in, week out. I think another thing I just want to mention is that I hate the word diet. I'm guessing you probably don't love that word either. It implies something temporary rather than permanent. Um, but just the idea of something that is a way of life is much more useful than a, a temporary just for the race or to lose some weight or any similar scenario to that. So w- would you agree? I totally agree. Um, I call it a healthy living lifestyle. Excellent. So. Well, let's end on that. Thank you so much for your time, Meredith. And I'll hopefully see you again soon. You can follow Meredith Terranova on Instagram at, at eating underscore living underscore healthy and her website eatingandlivinghealthy.com, which also has a Facebook page. Contact me, Ian Sharman, at shamanultra.com. And also let me know if there are any particular topics or guests you'd be interested in. Finally, it really helps the podcast reach more people if you rate or subscribe on whatever channel you get your shows from. So we really appreciate that. And check out PodiumRunner.com for articles for runners of all levels. Thanks and see you next month.